design is not what we make. Design is what we make possible for others. Brian Collins, our founder. And I think that's really true of how we approach massive brands. You know, the internal team is effectively the design is effectively the brand. And so a lot of the project is trying to solve the external challenge. What is the, what are we trying to communicate? What's appropriate to our audience? You know, what is the thing that the audience is going to see and thinking about it through that lens, but also understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the internal team, how that's likely to change, who's going to be executing on a day-to-day, and then trying to build a system that plays to those people's strengths. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Ben Crick, an Australian living in the USA. Ben is the creative director at Collins in San Francisco. His work is centered around creating systemic identities for brands, brands like Spotify, MailChimp, and Robinhood. He's very afraid of talking in public, but he spoke to us today. We talk about craft at scale, what actually went into the Spotify rebrand, and what it takes to set up an entropy-proof design system. Enjoy. So Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate you dragging yourself out of bed at ungodly hour to record this episode with us. My pleasure. Yeah, it's uh, like I said before. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't actually mind the excuse to get up a little bit early and get a get a head start on the day. So. Uh, not too bothered, but I'll, honestly, very excited to be here. Very excited to talk to you. I'm um, a huge fan of the work, um, you know, your previous podcast and the studio. So uh, I'm I'm just thrilled to get a chance to have a nice chat. Awesome. So so as as we chatted about in the the sort of uh, pre call of this 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 season of our podcast, we're really just tackling this idea of brands. Um, you know, because uh, I think quite often designers, it's very easy to understand brands. But when you when you sort of go more to the client side, yeah. there's there's often a very different understanding. And I'm very interested in in your work and the team of of the people at Collins because you know your sort of your client list spans all the way from from startups all the way to some of the largest um, largest companies or largest pieces of technology on earth. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like working in that full range of, of you know founder led companies all the way up to speaking to an entire board of people with massive teams? Yeah, um, I think it's first of all it's just super rewarding. I think you know. F- from an early start you're you're kind of told in design that you know if if you're if you're a good designer you can design almost anything and i think in many respects that's proven true i think good design is as much a a lot of it is a um mindset rather than anything else and then you kind of develop a kind of swiss army knife set of tools uh 
or expertises in different areas that help you kind of bring that thinking to life. And I think that's a lot of what experience in design is, is just building out your bag of knowledge and, and, and kind of mini expertises as you kind of go along. But the, but the higher order like thinking um, that frames it all, I think is applicable to a lot of different things. And so as an agency where, you know, we believe in the value of kind of diversity um, of, of clients basically and of projects. So we actively kind of try to seek to do things in new territories. If we, if we haven't done something, then we're always trying to look to do that. But um, just in general, I think we love getting the chance to work on different kinds of clients, but also scale, so big and small. I think they're totally different problems. Uh, and, and they offer kind of like rewarding and, and their own set of challenges, their own set of rewards. Uh, so I, I don't know. We, we like to think that it makes us stronger. It also keeps things interesting for us as well. One of the best parts of design, I think, is that conversely, it's also one of the most challenging parts of design, um, <laughs> but that every project and every client is different. You know, their communication goal, their industry, uh, their growth stage, <laughs> audiences, resources internally, you know, and so um, there's a lot of there's a lot of like broad strokes that you can apply like process wise that are probably um, things that you can carry over from project to project. But, but often each project is kind of like a unique beast and has to be tailor made. And that that's what makes it interesting, but also t terrifying and challenging and <laughs> all that other stuff. So now how do you work? You know, what is the, you know, because we always tell our clients that we don't have uh, like good and bad designers sitting in the room and, you know, when you've got a lower budget, we don't just go, okay, we're going to trot out the B team and let them have right. a, a play on the field. Like, how do you, how do you reconcile the, the, the cost differences between working with a startup or a founder-led company and versus uh, a massive corporation? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the cost is a function of time, right? And there's a lot of different ways you know, you're, you're paying an expert an amount of money for um, their input. And there, there's all sorts of different ways that we in the industry kind of mix that up. But at the end of the day, that's it. Uh, so I think if you boil it down to that, it's you can have a discussion about what are the what are the outputs and how can we kind of bend this project to be most effective for what you're looking to do. I think the difference between start, like startups and massive brands, of course, they're totally different. The, the company makeup is totally different. Usually, um, people's familiarity around the world is different. Their goal behind using design will often be different. You know, big companies are often looking to change people's understanding of them, whereas startups are often just trying to get people to notice them and that they're mm -hmm. there and to maybe communicate like a very uh, specific message what are our values as a company and how do we impart that on people as quickly as possible um so it, it when kind of like figuring out how to work with a company it really comes down to that you know we we try to spend a lot of time understanding the brief or even the questions behind the brief what are the what is the company's goal what is the change they're trying to affect and then we'll often you know have a conversation about how we can best help do that um Obviously, it's great to know things like budgets, <laughs> but there's a whole bunch of other factors as well, you know, timelines and um, resources internally, um, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, we try to look at it as um, they, they, you know, 
working with a good design agency shouldn't feel like ordering off a menu. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're collaborating on making a new recipe in many senses. And so there's a lot of time that you need to spend sitting down and talking to each other and trying to figure out what's your goal, what, you know, flavor profile you're going for, what ingredients do we have? And hopefully out of that comes a brief that feels um, like it takes into account both of your expertises. Uh, and so I would say, you know, working for startups versus working for massive brands or even at a higher level, just any design project, there's a, there's often the, the, the first brief and then the second brief that hopefully if we've gotten to that stage in the conversation <laughs> is something yes. that we have kind of crafted together and, sometimes includes different touch points, different outputs to, you know, we've made certain recommendations based on what we understand of their budget and all of that kind of good stuff. So I would just say like anything in design, it's tailor-made and the way we work around, you know, designers love constraints and starting a project and the process of a project is no different from any other part of the design process. And we just try to figure out with the things we have, what's the best thing we can deliver for you and if the client agrees, then we get started. And if they disagree, then we sadly part ways and wish them the best, I guess. So, so you almost uh, approach crafting the brief with the client as a design challenge. So how do, we, how do we find the right solution for your challenge and your constraints? Yeah, ideally, when we have the opportunity to, uh, you know, I make it sound like, you know, we, we go in and we get this chance all of the time. I think, um, I think that characteristically the best projects I've ever worked on have been partnerships at that level. It's not always true. You know, you're, you're competing with other agencies for some things, or there's kind of like a pitch, a paid pitch component in which you don't quite have the chance to make that case for yourself. But um, best case scenario, I think we do that. I think the best projects are, are a journey of understanding between you and the client. And so the more, exchange you have throughout the process the better you're set up for that um essentially so that's always the goal but maybe not as um <laughs> maybe dream. not as, you know i would yeah i wish i could say that we do it all the time and that we're like some kind of unicorn that just gets that level of access to clients but it's not always true so so can i jump into you know sort of one of the, the projects that uh, your studio is famous for is obviously the spotify rebrand and that's an interesting project because it's it's so large in in terms of how many items it touched and how many things it needed to consider and the teams who you had to take along for the ride to to roll it out because uh, you didn't necessarily design every single last piece that people see can you talk a little bit about about that project and how you got the the people inside Spotify to understand what you were trying to do and work with them to ultimately deliver that piece of work. Yeah. I, I, Spotify was a huge project for me on a number of levels. Um, and we talked about this a little bit in the pre-call, but I think for Collins, it was one of the projects, one of a series of projects that I think put us on the map a little bit more. Um, from a kind of structural sense, it was a project where we kind of um, honed a theory of design at scale that we've kind of continued working on since then uh, and has proven to be kind of like um, fairly successful for us. And, and, you know, I was really lucky to be part of a team 
Brian was on that team. Um, Lee, who was one of the co-founders. I'm just going to drop some names just because uh, uh, these people deserve credit uh, whenever because they're super talented. Christian Widlick was um, uh, working with me on that project as well. Um, yeah, it was, it was, I think Spotify is a good example of that mass of that. Um, if we're talking about, you know, what does it mean to design for massive brands? And I think the lesson that we learned is that it's a totally different problem than trying to say, design something small or even midsize where you have a lot of control over the app output and, uh, and, and the number of touch points are more finite. So as you say, the challenge with massive brands is you need to serve so many departments who probably don't talk to each other all that often. Um, there's so many um, channels in which the brand lives. Uh, customers' expectations these days are of brands that respond in real time uh, or extremely quickly it's just like the, the the level of complexity of the problem is exponentially greater. There's no way that one person could ever deliver or police or quality control all of that work. And so the problem becomes not how do we design this perfect artifact in a vacuum, but how do we enable an, an, an organization to create great work consistently when the cost that's creating that work is often changing or variable as much as anything, and the and the channels and the places that that brand, that idea will live, um, you might know many of them now, but you know we had no idea. We did the Spotify project in 2014, and we had no idea what they would be doing or or their level of success or what channels would be most important to them in 2020. Um, so it becomes this really interesting exercise where all the, the, the problem is significantly more complex and the pieces are always moving at the same time. Um, I, I, so I guess the, the difference is, or how we approach that is um, really boiling it down as simply as possible is it, it's a toolkit, um, which sounds really dumb, but... I think Brian has the best quote for this, which is um, design is not what we make. Design is what we make possible for others. Brian Collins, um, our founder. And I think that's really true of how we approach massive brands. You know, the internal team is effectively the design is effectively the brand. And so a lot of the project is trying to solve the external challenge. What is the, what are we trying to communicate? What's appropriate to our audience? You know, what is the thing that the audience is going to see and thinking about it through that lens, but also understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the internal team, how that's likely to change, who's going to be executing on a day-to-day, -day, and then trying to build a system that plays to those um, people's strengths or, or to that organization's strengths in a way that's going to, when we disappear, is going to set them up to continue to succeed or um, hopefully you know, improve on the work that we've done. Um, when you think about brands like Spotify, there's no way that you know, our, our five person team that worked on that project is going to solve the, all of the problems of a kind of international, massive multi-billion dollar company. So it really becomes a partnership at that point. And it's really about understanding what they need and trying to build a toolkit that's going to best serve them. So now, I mean, what are some of those, I, th I think it's really interesting thinking about it as a toolkit like what are some of the things that you had to create to to make it work when it you know it's no longer being designed and illustrated by a trained designer it's potentially being put together by a 
community manager or a product manager or yeah. you know anybody else how do you how do you solve for that yeah i mean that was that was a really interesting conundrum we at this point we've kind of got it more or less down to a science but um back then slightly less so we were kind of figuring out the road as we built it um but you know the, i think the basic components that are kind of um core you know, I, the best brands are familiar and surprising. Like that's the, that's, that's the equation or this kind of like seesaw that you live on where you need um, elements that are consistent and are um, recognizable. And that's things like logo and typeface. Often the kind of things that you can, you're going to see over a five year period and you're like, okay, that's the brand I know and love and I trust. And it has this kind of like halo effect. But if your brand never changes, especially in, the today's age people are going to get house blind and bored of it very quickly so you also need components that are built to deliver surprise that are flexible that are um, better at telling so logos and typefaces and things like that they can tell a really high level implicit story that is hopefully always true um, with spotify color became a big piece of that and we use color as a way to communicate um, uh, range of emotion because um, it was the best visual analog to music's kind of you know, music is inherently emotional uh, and color was the best way to kind of visualize that. And it, and it allowed us to um, create a sense of variety and pop culture and all those things. Those are all implicit messages that are always true of almost anything they want to say. But then there's the second layer, which is how do we be contextually uh, specific? How do we talk to a specific audience? How do we tell more detailed stories? And that's where um, you have elements that are designed to be a little more flexible and to evolve over time. So core elements are usually things like logo, typeface, color often. Uh, and then there's somewhere in the middle is usually like a layout system or a principle around how you kind of arrange elements. And then in the more dynamic kind of surprising end of the spectrum, you have things like photography, illustration, um, uh, those are usually the most dynamic things. And then, and then there's all sorts of expressions of that environmental and sound and stuff like that. But try try not to like let just run away with myself and just yes. talk your ear off for like 30 minutes on this kind of stuff. But that's kind of like, that's kind of the toolkit, I suppose, is how we would think about the core pillars that make up any kind of brand at scale. Um, it doesn't mean that they're all always true or that you have to have all of them or, or anything. Um, but I think, you know, when, when working with companies the size of Spotify and especially with them, you know, they do so much stuff that having basically a version of almost every visual thing is helpful to them. Um, and then it's just a process of kind of our process becomes, um, you know, working with them to, to identify the most important places that brand will be expressed and also to identify kind of a range of touch points that's going to represent the customer's journey or different entry points or ways people could um, come in contact with the Spotify brand that's going to be um, most important and, uh, and essentially finding different recipes to make out of those elements that serve those. Um, when it comes to the second part of your question, when it comes to building a system that may not always be handled by designers, I think that's just part of the constraints that we try to consider. Um, with specifically with Spotify, you know, we several of the techniques we select, you know, we selected them because we felt like they were uh, 
they enabled maybe people who weren't practiced with the system to still create something that felt uh, on brand and reasonably good. So, you know, the, the aesthetic of the system allowed for, it didn't need to be like pixel perfect or super precise in order to have the right sense of energy and um, uh, the right quality to it. So I guess we tried to build a system that in expert hands, you know, could really um, be beautiful and kind of enable those people to do uh, incredible creative things, but also wasn't constrained to being only usable by experts. So you could still kind of show up as a lay person or as like a less practiced person and still deliver things that were great. And then some components, um, you know, w we had this um, kind of color treatment that we applied to uh, photos called Duotone, which was a very long story. Um, but uh, we actually ended up developing a tool for that that, uh, that um, kind of applied the brand's color palette to photos. So we gave them this little piece of software uh, and they could give that to people who weren't in the design team and it allowed them to kind of shortcut essentially what is a fairly simple process on Photoshop, but just took all of the choice out of it, only left you with the kind of core brand colors and a random button, which really just cycled through all of our favorite color pairings. And they could just drop a photo in and spit out a kind of colorized photo. And, and worst case scenario, that gave them something that felt kind of uh, branded. Right. Um, so just like, you know, it's just like all of these things are, are small little pieces of the puzzle that you try to fold into the answer as you go. But I mean, I like that because it seems a lot of the, the bigger brands that we, we work on and work with, quite often the way of controlling it is those those brand guides are so constrained that you can't do anything. They're just like, this is the layout. This is the grid. These are the 17 images you can use. Those are the colors. So you just drop in your line of copy here, drop that. And that's about all you can do. Um, so I think it's interesting to consider how people are using it and how people are rolling it out. And also thinking across all the way from this person might have no design skill to this person might be a, a, a really talented architect or a really talented interior designer or a, a you know a, a, and they can take that system and, and almost push it further than than what you would have conceived of it seems it seems that craft is very important in your you know a lot of what you talk about is like crafting those details and and bringing that stuff to life now now how do you how do you reconcile this idea of craft and the idea of scale, because they, they seem to almost be at odds with each other. So, you know, in order to make something work across a million different systems in a million different hands, you can't, like, how do you, how do you reconcile that? Yeah. I don't think there's like a secret sauce. I think, um, I think you're a hundred percent right. Craft and scale definitely are at tension with each other. I think craft is, really just consideration of every detail um, and the, and scale is often about finding efficiencies, right? Uh, and so those two notions are, are kind of at odds with each other because as you scale, complexity grows exponentially and it becomes more and more work to consider every detail. So uh, I think, that, yeah, there's no secret sauce. Honestly, it's just like passion and practice and probably a healthy dissatisfaction for the status quo. Uh, I think um, unrelenting care for the details to a probably like a somewhat obsessive level. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Could you, um, could you do a little <laughs> segue about the, the MailChimp week? Um, you, you told yeah. me a story that I found very exciting. Yeah, so um, Chris Wong, who was working on that, who was our motion director, um, was, you know, one of the parts of the brief when we were working on MailChimp was to um, re, you know, we, we, we kind of tidied up the logo and, and, and made it more effective in a number of, it was an illustrative logo and had a number of different colors and kind of fine details in it. Uh, and one of the parts of the brief was to just simplify that logo, make it more iconic so that it worked in more uh, places and kind of help, you know, all the kind of traditional thing measures of success for a good logo, basically. When your logo is a floating chimp head, it defies some of the <laughs> things that, you know, most graphic designers would say are um, standards of a high quality logo. So, you know, there was a process of reduction. And then um, animation, obviously, uh, and the logo uh, had this wink to it. And so we kind of had to animate this simplified head as a wink. And um, Chris went through this whole process of analyzing different kinds of winks from kind of um, pop culture. Uh, and there's a, there's this whole, there's this whole video we have in, in our kind of internal presentations of George Costanza from Seinfeld kind of winking and like motion tracking his head to kind of get the right kind of head rotation and tilt and amount of bounce at the bottom and things like that. Trying to define what's the difference between like a sleazy wink and a really friendly wink uh, was kind of fun. And then trying to pile all of that information into like a simplified chimp's head. Um, but I guess those are, to, to my earlier point, you know, that's the fun of being a designer, right? Is you never, mm -hmm. you wake up every day, you never quite know what you're going to be dealing with. Um, but that was, yeah, that's fun. I, I mean, I, I think that's representative, as you say, of just, you know, it's just craft at scale is the same as craft anywhere else. It's just trying to bring intentionality and consideration to every decision. The challenge with scale is that you have to, externalize craft from yourself it's no longer your craft it's kind of um, how do i get this organization to buy into this level of detail that we believe is important that often they might not see the difference between you know what that extra 10 percent brings and that's again just like partnership working with the client helping them understand um, and and often kind of mentoring them in what is the value of craft why is that important helping them operationalize those kinds of processes. Uh, and often because we work with a design team who works within a larger organization, there's a lot of um, working with them to socialize the work we've done and helping the rest of the organization understand why we've done it and get them to buy in on it. Um, and I think at the end of the day, like that level of quality, if it's going to survive beyond your time together in that partnership, it it needs to come from them. So you kind of need to work together and understand what they're passionate about, what their kind of strengths are as a design team or as a company and build that notion of craft together with them in a way that they're excited about it. They have their fingerprints all over it and they can then go and champion and evangelize it into the future. Because, you know, once you dis if they don't believe in it and you disappear at the end of your engagement, it's immediately going to start, you know, entropy is going to start setting in and, and it, it will just degrade over time. So um, I think the like the most important factor of long term success with craft at scale is that the internal team, you know, is is representative of it and embodies it. So, so can I ask, I mean, it, it seems like a lot of your work 
you know, you, you, you talk about being a designer, but it seems like a lot of your work is the, the human components of it, like getting these people to buy in, convincing yeah. teams of your point of view, getting them to the point that you need them to be. Can you, can you talk about some of the, the client relationships you've had that have been really successful? So how, how would, you know, if someone was listening to the podcast and they are a client in an organization, how, how should they think about setting up a relationship with a, a design team that'll get the best out of the, the, the team they're bringing in from the outside and then leave behind that almost that, that institutional knowledge that's what you're going to ultimately use to roll this thing out to get the most value out of it? Yeah, great question. Oh, I got to get this one right because it could pay dividends in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I can just point people to this conversation. Um, I think... You know, trying to understand what change you seek in the world, try, trying, you know, like I said earlier, it's not like ordering off a menu. The best, the best projects I've ever worked on, it's not like ordering off a menu. You know, we, um, Brian says this too, but, you know, any, anything we throw at them, they throw it back harder at us. Um, and I think we want that kind of dialogue and exchange. And that's just true from the start of the project all the way through. So what's the change you're trying to seek? Um, and then starting with a conversation and being fairly upfront about kind of constraints that you have and even budget everyone you know loves to dance around budget but at least for us we're not trying to rip anyone off we just want to understand the box within which we can play but you know we're obsessed with excellence and so we're always going to try to squeeze the most out of whatever you have um uh what else have i got and I know, so, so when we were chatting, you were talking about your um, your engagement with the Robin Hood team and, and yes. how, how much fruit that, you know, how that was such a great engagement and yeah. how you wish that they were all like that. Thanks for feeding me that. Thanks for <laughs> got me out of a, a loop I got stuck in. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, it's again, you know, every, design is changing so rapidly. I think that um, every project is kind of a new lesson learned and a new um, experiment tried and, and things like that. But um, Robin Hood was and has been um, really excellent because, because of that. I think they really challenged us as a design team. I think they, they really came to the table with strong opinions um, but really informed opinions. You know, they did their homework on the things that we presented and they came back with very thoughtful um, kind of feedback and, and very thoughtful challenges. They were really considerate of the constraints and the, and the kind of, um, you know, every time we had a conversation, it really felt like a conversation. It wasn't, you know, we present this work and they're looking to check a bunch of boxes and walk out of the room and the design system. They weren't looking for a design system that made their jobs simpler or easier. They were looking for a system that made them more effective at their goals. And I think that's a really huge difference. Mm. Um, I think in terms of process, how that shook out, um, you know, we, we tried a few new things with them that have since become kind of more traditional for us. Uh, we had their teams in our office for a week, uh, you know, their product teams, not just the brand team. And we really tried to understand the constraints around the product specifically, um, which is for a digital company is obviously a huge component of the brand. And if you don't consider that often design systems for tech companies can really just become marketing systems. 
uh, and you and you know brand and product rail, uh, speak less than you would imagine they do uh, in those kinds of organizations. I think um, we were given access to the leaders, so you know founders were in our presentations, and I think that's really important. At the end of the day, as much as you possibly can, having the person who's making the final decision be part of the process is incredibly important. So critical. Yeah, you know, there's design is this fun dance between subjectivity and and an attempt to find objectivity. Uh, and I don't know where those two end and begin for most projects, but um, you know, having the leader who inherently, as much as you want to externalize and say this is our audience and these are the factors for success. Uh, here's what they're looking for in the world. Here's the kind of aesthetic or the kind of messaging that's going to best serve them. Again, you have to understand that the company, if there's a founder, the company is is someone's you know project of work for their life. It's their baby, and and you need to take into account that it needs to feel like them on some level. You're never going to convince someone who like a founder to love something they don't like. You know, it's just you're not going to 180 someone like that. So what's it, it's better to understand what is going, you know, understand their proclivities, what they're looking for, what they love and make that a factor of success in your work rather than trying to kind of steamroll them. Um, I think you see so often people try and push their own design solution into the wrong, you know, trying to, trying to force people to adopt things that they're not necessarily ready to adopt or they, it's just not, doesn't fit them. And it so often works in the presentation phase and everyone's excited and then you leave the room and they're like, actually, wait a minute. I'm not sure if this makes me happy or not. It it doesn't seem to fit as well as I thought it did when you were presenting it to me. Exactly. And so that's why it's kind of critical to have those kind of leadership people in the room, because the more understanding you build with that person, the more likely you're going to build something that fits the problem and just understanding that they're, um, what they're looking for is part of the problem and not an obstacle to be kind of uh, steamrolled, I suppose. Uh, And then we did, I mean, we did a bunch of stuff with Robin Hood. Once we, once we kind of defined the idea, we did this, um, workshop where we brought a bunch of their teams in we visited a whole bunch of um that that project is all about the future with uh, built on the notion that investing is about believing in a better future that's why you invest money that you know that the, the future will be better than today um and so we kind of just extrapolated that idea to the extreme and built this kind of like science fiction world that was supposed to be kind of a picture of what would it be like if Robin Hood kind of like succeeded and there was way more equality and democracy of, of finance and everyone understood their finances way better. What would that world look like and what are all the magical things that could, could be in it? And that was supposed to be an inspiring vision. Uh, and, and so in order to kind of paint that picture more fully and to get everyone on board, we, we took kind of like uh, 12 or 15 folks from Robin Hood from all over the organization uh, and we... Um, kind of visited uh, like self-driving car uh, companies and architect studios. And we sent them all off to Pixar. We went to a MoMA exhibit, uh, which was very conveniently on kind of space and, uh, and how space had shown up in pop culture. Uh, And we, we just kind of like tried to take in a bunch of stuff, but that was really fun because it was kind of practical learning. Uh, And we basically had them help us define the rules of this universe. So what are, what are the different types of people? What are the, how far out is it? 
what what is technology really kind of angular and super slick or is technology kind of softer and more human as a reflection of kind of a, a more a more human world or a world shaped more for human interaction so that was really fun a total experiment led by Corinne uh, Sokup who's the managing partner of the office here um, but I, you know, I think those are the best kinds of client partnerships where, you know, we've been working with them and the relationship is so trusted and we almost feel like part of their team where we can come in and say, hey, guys, I think this work is going to be way richer if we all take three days and do this crazy workshop. What do you think? And they were totally game for it because they were totally bought in and kind of part of the genesis of the idea to begin with. And so I think, yeah, like for me, that's representative of just like, it's it's at the end of the day it really is about like forming a really strong relationship and a really strong understanding of each other to the point where um like i don't believe in the idea that especially at scale that you need to find compromise because i think compromise implies that both sides of the equation gave up on something to meet in the middle i i believe that in almost every project there is a point at which you both feel like you won it just requires a lot of iteration and work to get there. And you need to find a client who's uh, and, and an agency, honestly, who's willing to go through that kind of like occasionally painful process to get to that point where you both feel like you won. And usually that's just a factor of time <laughs> and revisions. And revisions, uh, many, many revisions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so, right. Oh, sorry. So I'm, I'm very interested in, you know, you, you've sort of worked on these these huge brands that are touching many, many people's lives. You know, I mean, I, I listen to Spotify and I'm sitting halfway across the world, you know, so I've got a piece of your design uh, on my phone and in my house. What role do you see these brands playing in society? Um, you know, that we live in this time where, Kind of, it, it feels a little bit like everything's on fire, and people seem to sometimes be turning to brands to have some kind of opinion or to make some kind of a statement or to to stand for something. Where where do you, as the you know someone who's been involved in creating some of these things, uh, sit on that? Yeah, I think um, I I would like to believe that it's less. Um, I, I think brands are a reflection of culture in many respects, uh, they kind of, and so I think in the last, especially in the last, you know, five years, but in the last 10, 15 years, I think just culture is getting more politicized or, you know, people are, um, it, it is becoming more expected that people, uh, have and share and represent a kind of strong opinion on how they think the world should be. Uh, and so that notion is just filtering down into brands. You know, brands are recognizing that people people want them to have a strong point of view. And, they're, and hopefully they're understanding that a successful brand is not a brand that tries to talk to everyone, but a brand that try, that, that understands an audience and speaks to it. And also understand that in doing that, they're not excluding themselves from mass market success. They are just, you know, people are multidimensional and they don't, they don't just stand for one thing and that's it. You know, I can love McDonald's one day and then go to a steakhouse the next day. And both of those things are representations of me. It just depends what I'm looking for at the time. And so as a brand, you serve a side of me, not 
a one-dimensional person who only eats McDonald's all of the time. And so having a point of view, a lot of brands make this, you know, I think, or a lot of companies confuse this idea that in order to appeal to everyone, they have to be like very almost like soft-spoken and vanilla. Exactly. And I don't think that's true at all. I think the best brands are really opinionated and, and it, and it, you know, you only have to look out there. Apple has such a specific point of view on the world and such a specific design idea that they embody. And yet they're super mainstream, probably one of the most successful companies that's ever existed. Um, Nike is kind of the same. They embody energy and they, and they're outspoken increasingly. So, and yet that doesn't mean that Nike's feel exclusive or that, you know, a 13 year old can't still buy Nike's and a grandma can't with like, you know, poor with like, you know, painful feet can't buy Nike's. They just stand for performance or excellence. And that notion can show up in people's lives and in, in kind of different moments all over the place. So, um, uh, you know, I think more and more we expect brands to be opinionated because we are opinionated, uh, and the best brands are realizing that they increasingly, you know, with Gen Z and, 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 and all these, um, even millennials, uh, these new generations that really stand by, um, their beliefs and, and have a strong opinion on the world that they're looking for brands that not only reflect that, but allow them to kind of, um, flex that opinion. So we talked about this a little bit in the prequel, but you know, I'm a strong believer that whenever you buy anything, you're, you're, you're making a decision about how you want to see yourself and how you want the world to see you. Uh, and so in many respects, the brands that you purchase and that you surround yourself with and that you align with in your life are, are playing almost a similar role to fashion now where they're a form of self-expression to others, but also to yourself, you know, it's like, I want to be, I want to understand myself as the person who likes this set of brands or likes this set of brands. Uh, and I, where that idea started from, I don't know, but I think brands are brands are a reflection of culture and not um, the best brands drive culture and kind of see those trends on the rise. But um, you know, in large part, the great swath of um, brands are kind of a reflection of that, and I think that just comes from these new generations. I love that. Um, you know, so I think that we we're running to the end of our time. Um, I just, I'd love to hear you, you articulated the, the sort of vision or the purpose of Collins uh, very beautifully on our pre-call. Can you, can you talk about the, that? Like what is Collins's, what is that sentence that you want the world to, to know? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I don't know. In my mind, Collins has always been, or, or has become perhaps is a better, um, way to say it the big small agency uh and a lot of it has to do with that notion of craft or or wrestling with the duality of craft and scale and how do we find a way to reconcile both of those ideas um i started a small studio and that's where i kind of learned um in many respects the and developed my passion for the craft and i think everyone gets into design because they're a crafts person they just want to bring beautiful things into the world uh, and, and, and that tends to be the most, um, personally satisfying 
sort of in the moment act of design. Uh, but I do think that if you leave it there, you can get lost creating really beautiful things that have very little consequence in the world. Uh, and I think a lot of designers lament that we're not, you know, there's, there's the great, um, kind of arts, which is like music and architecture and, uh, art, you know, th uh, art forms that, that are arts, but have found kind of a commercial place or a commercial utility as well. And I think graphic designers often lament that we don't feel like we have the same gravity as those disciplines. And I honestly think that's mostly our fault for not pushing forward on what is possible with design to actually make change in the world because it gets really hard uh, and because it because inherently design requires a partnership and that can be frustrating for the reasons that we all understand both from a client and a design side you know you have to it's a it's a it's a balancing equation to get work that everyone loves uh, and, and the smaller the number of people and the problem is the easier it is to overcome that challenge so uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, I think there's, you know, there's companies that do a great job delivering brands at scale, but there are, and we've all seen this, there are also kind of companies that over index on understanding the language of business and understanding the, um, the, the kind, you know, in order to get work through those organizations, you have to understand how. You have to come to meet them where they are, basically. You can't just expect them to understand your talent and four years of design school and 10 years of experience and just walk into a design crit with you and get everything straight away in the same way that you don't understand what they do. So um, anyway, so a lot of companies, I think, find their way too far in the opposite direction and the work and the craft of the work tends to suffer because the client is not asking for the level of quality and they see the opportunity to, um, or maybe not the opportunity, but they don't feel the pressure to continue to push if the client is not asking for it. And you end up with brands that I think are, are too much a reflection of the client's, uh, uh, kind of, I guess, uh, very fairly kind of layperson opinion and not, and, and the designer is not bringing as much uh, experience as they could or understanding or, or anything like that. And so, sorry, anyway, I know I'm rambling to wrap it all up in a nice little bow. Um, what I've loved about Collins and what has been the kind of ongoing experiment. I've been here eight years now, almost um, is trying to find that middle point between those two. How do we, how do we hang on to the craft and the, the care and the attention to detail that is um, that I traditionally assign to kind of smaller studios and often art projects, and how do we and how do we find ways to bring that into projects at scale and operationalize it in this much more complex environment and help clients understand the value of it and all of that kind of stuff. And I don't know, it's it's hard. Honestly, it's really tough. Um, the ten you, we feel the tension between good business and good design constantly. You know, uh, like we talked about earlier, good design is so often a factor of time, and <laughs> time is and, not the the thing. But is that not is that not inherently the 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 dance that everyone needs to make in this in this space? Um, I love the way you articulated it at the at the end of our last call is that design is not what we make, but what we make possible for others. Yeah. And I, I can't claim credit for that quote. That's Brian Collins, my founder, but I think it's a hundred percent on point and increasingly, I mean, you can, you can 
you can understand that in a number of ways, right? From an operational standpoint, like literally, what do we make for other people to make from it? Um, but also design is a tool for change and, and what kind of, when we create design, we're, we're creating opportunities uh, and possibilities for um, clients with our work. And keeping that in your mind as you go through any phase of the design process, I think is really, is a really powerful kind of litmus test for, am I focusing on the right thing right now? Mm. I mean, I yeah. think that's such a, a lovely note to, to end the, the podcast on and Ben thank you so much for well, your my time my pleasure and thank you for fighting fighting the fights and <laughs> uh, making the products that people use every day slightly more exciting and slightly more surprising and uh, still thank clear. you so thank you All very right. much for your time it's been a pleasure thank you for having me and listening to me ramble and kind of uh, <laughs> hopefully come back together in somewhere that makes sense and maybe yes. a few good things dropped out uh, I think there was many, many things that people can learn. Um, so, so thank you very much and we'll catch you in the next one. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa, and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.